Welcome to the Generations Church Podcast. This is Brian Nugent, and I'm the pastor at Generations Church. Thanks for listening today. We have a guest speaker with us, and we hope that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. For more information about Generations Church and its ministries, check out our webpage at gctlh.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. Listen, we are very honored to have uh, with us Dr. Mark Rutland. Man, what a, what a resume he has. Uh, came out of the Methodist Church. He was in the Methodist Church. Got baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Lord did a work in his heart and a great, great church there. Then he, he moved to Calvary Assembly in Orlando and pastored there and did a great, great work there. He was the president at Southeastern University, our AG schools, for many years. He was the president at Oral Roberts University, and now he is traveling and, and speaking. I listen to his podcast that he has and, uh, uh, for leaders, and he's an amazing leader, amazing pastor. Many of you, you know, went to Southeastern, and you know Dr. Rutland from there. I took him to my office, and on my diploma is his signature, okay? And I just want you to know I'm still paying off that loan. I just want you to know that. So, uh, uh, hey, would you make welcome to Generations Church, our guest speaker this morning, Dr. Mark Rutland. Good morning, good morning. What an extravagant introduction. It's great to be here. I have heard about this church. We have mutual friends, Evangelist Joe Phillips, others that have told me about this church. And finally, at last, your pastor has finally heard from God and invited me. I didn't realize how stubborn he was until it took all these years. Well, I'm delighted to be here. And I appreciate the joy and the spirit that's in the house this morning. We won't discuss football this morning in any way. I want to uh, give you a brief infomercial. There is a book table uh, in the lobby as you go out, and I hope that you will stop there and uh, buy some of these books. I checked uh, that out what titles were there. I met one lady over here, she said she read my book, Launch Out Into the Deep, and uh, I wrote that book nearly 40 years ago, and I've written 19 since then, so ma'am, I'm expecting you to buy the other 19, (laughs) but uh, they're not all there, but the three latest ones are there. This one is called 21 Seconds to Change Your World. It is... uh, um, a book about the connection between the Lord's Prayer and the 23rd Psalm. It's interesting, isn't it, that the two greatest devotional classics in two of the world's major religions were written by two men born in the same small village a thousand years apart. And uh, it's there, 21 Seconds to Change the World. 21 Seconds, the title comes, that's about how long it takes uh, to pray the Lord's Prayer. It's 21 Seconds. Unless you're from Mississippi, it takes about 45 seconds. And uh, then this book is called Courage to be Healed. This book has been a tremendous seller for us. Uh, Of course, uh, we believe in physical healing, and we pray for physical healing and believe God, but that's not what this book is about. This book is about the healing of damaged emotions. It's about inner healing. 
It is my conviction, my observation in many, many years of study and counseling that the greatest variable in inner healing is not faith, it's courage. The courage to face the need and to deal with the things that God wants to do in order to heal us. So this book is there called Courage to be Healed. And this is one of the biggest selling books I ever wrote. This is called David the Great. This is the uh, life and leadership of King David. And this book has been a huge seller for us. Uh, The reason is because with this book, we tapped into a market that's very difficult to reach. All Christian publishers, book publishers, will tell you that Christian books are written by women for women. You can look at, walk through Christian bookstores if you can find one, and, uh, and you'll see that the titles are directed toward women and most of the authors are women. But uh, regardless of what you women think, some men can read, and um, we started to put pictures in this one. Um, But uh, this book has been read by women and loved by women, but this book also uh, tapped into the male reader market, and that's what made it take off. And why not? David was a man's man. He was a tough guy. He was a warrior's warrior. Uh, He was a, a man's man. This is the kind of guy you want to take deer hunting with you. You might not want him to take your wife deer hunting. Um, But we deal with that. We deal with that. This is, this is the real King David. This is, not, this is not your sanitized Sunday school version. This is not little David play on your harp. We deal with the real guy here. It's, David was the girl with the curl in the middle of her forehead. When he was good, he was very good. And when he was bad, he was horrid. And yet at the end, he's still called a man after God's own heart. And, and I wanted to know why. And that's what this book is about. One lady um, bought 10 cases it's, there's 36 in a case. It's 360 books. I said, ma'am, I'll sell you 1,000. Why? Uh, she said her son was a master sergeant in the Army, and she bought him uh, 360 books to hand out to troops. Isn't that a great idea? And uh, another man bought for all the uh, police in his city. I thought, man, if we can get the cops reading Christian books, Jesus is coming soon. I'm... I was working on this book in Israel. I've been to Israel 48 times. I was in Israel working on that book. I was sitting at a picnic table, outdoor picnic table by the uh, Sea of Galilee, and I had the manuscript stacked up, and I turned page and edit and turn the next page, and I looked up, and there was an Israeli lady standing across the table. She said, are you an American? I said, I am. She said, what are you doing? I said, I'm working on a book. I, I was there to do some I wanted to do some geographical research, make sure I knew, you know, when I said north, I wanted to make sure it was north. And uh, I said, I'm I'm working on a book. She said, what about? I said, David. This is an Israeli woman in Israel. I said, David. She said, David who? I said, well, King David, you're king. She stepped back like I had touched her with a cattle prod, and she got a horrible look on her face. And she said, why? Why would you write a book about that bloody man? And she turned around and walked off. And I thought to myself, gay hombre, what a man. After 3,000 years, he can still make a woman that angry. What a man. 
So I hope you'll stop and get these books. It probably doesn't matter to you to hear this. It matters to me to say it. I do not take one penny from any Christian book I've ever written. All of the 20 books I've written, I've got a 20th one coming out in October. I've never taken one penny from any of it. Even the royalties uh, from books sold worldwide, they're all paid directly to global servants. Uh, They support our girls' homes in Southeast Asia and West Africa. I don't take anything for speaking here. I'm paid a salary as the executive director of the National Institute of Christian Leadership. And everything else, everything else that I bring in supports our girls' homes. So I hope you'll go out there to the book table and spend yourself into bankruptcy. (laughs) Refinance your house. Steal the children's lunch money. Come on. You're a jolly crew. I like that. You cannot believe the number of churches where I preach where laughter has never touched this face. So that shows me that your pastor has a jolly spirit. If you have your Bibles, if you'll take those and turn, if you will, please, to the book of Isaiah, the sixth chapter of Isaiah, if you will. A familiar passage of Scripture, I think. Most of you will know it. I want you to follow me. I'm gonna, I think they're going to put it up on the screen as well. Um, I'm going to be reading from KJV. I used to get a lot of grief from the students. I, I, pastor, I uh, was the president of two different universities for more than 16 years combined. And the uh, young people used to always ask me, why do you always read from the King James Bible? It's so old-timey. Why do you read from King James? Well, part of it was loyalty. Uh, I went to high school with King James. Um, Jimmy, we call, he wasn't a, high, wasn't a king in high school. We called him Jimmy. Uh, the other part of it is... Uh, the, the Shakespearean sound of the King James Bible appeals to my creative spirit. I, all the these and thous that offend everybody else. I like that sound. I, I can't get used to some of the modern versions where Jesus comes down to the Sea of Galilee and says, What's happening, dudes? But, but I'm, not, I'm not religiously hung up on it. Okay. You don't, you don't have to have a King James Bible to go to heaven. One will be given you when you get there. <laughs> but why stand in that long, embarrassing line? You know? I'm just teasing. I'm always afraid somebody will say, Amen, brother. I'm just, I'm just joking with you. you. You don't have to have a King James Bible. You follow me in whatever cheap communist imitation you've got. <laughs> you're, you're good. I like this group. No, seriously, this morning, I want to read from KJV because of one specific word. I want to preach this morning on the word also. And it is in this passage in the King James rendering, oddly enough, in some of the more contemporary translations, it's omitted. And it's extremely important. Um, So following me, if you will. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord. You see it? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and, uh, and, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. By the way, in passing, that's the only place in the whole Bible where that word is mentioned. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, 
and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Put your hands on your Bible, if you will, and let's pray together. Padre bendito celestial, te damos gracias por tu presencia con nosotros en esta mañana. Porque te necesitamos mucho. Necesitamos un palabra de esperanza. Ayúdame, por favor. Lléname con tu Espíritu Santo y úsame a su gloria si es posible. Y por favor, glorifica tu nombre en este mensaje. Lord, we praise you. We worship you. We pray that you would brush aside every barrier to divine communication. Linguistic, cultural, generational, and rush in over the threshold of our souls. That when we leave here today, we will say one to another, Surely the Lord has spoken unto us. In the mighty name, Jesus, the strong Son of God, amen. Amen and amen. I, uh, I've spent uh, the major portion of my adult career as a student of the discipline of communication. More than 50 years I've studied what makes communication work. When it works, why does it work? When it, when it doesn't work so well, what went wrong? I've studied it in, in linguistics, in, in public speaking, preaching, in writing, in, in mass media, radio, television. I, I've tried to understand communication. Now I know what some of you are thinking. If he has spent a half a century studying communication, it seems like he'd be better at it. But you don't know how bad I might have been. Here's what I know. We're one to boil the discipline of communication for a thousand years. The creme de sens that would rise to the top, the, the cream that would rise to the top at the end of that would simply be four things. The right message to the right party in the right way at the right time. The right message to the right party in the right way at the right time. Get any of those four variables wrong, and it can all go wrong, really wrong, really fast. You can think that you're transmitting clearly, and yet the message that's received may not be at all what you transmitted, and the response that you get may not be at all what you had hoped for. Every married man in the room knows exactly what I'm talking about right now. There are those moments when you think you're communicating clearly and you can tell while you're talking from the look on her face that the ice is cracking under your feet. Part of it is that sometimes language is changing. Irrespective of which language in which we speak, even the English language is, is shifting, it's evolving, or probably I should say devolving, faster and faster and faster. Uh, mass media uh, has, has caused that to happen faster. What used to change over a period of decades now can change in years. I, I went to speak not too long ago in California, which is evidently where the English language will be destroyed. And I was speaking to a high school audience. And it was thousands of high school kids. And they were so enthused. I don't know when I've ever spoken to a an audience that was so with it 
afterward, I was speaking to a group of the boys, and they were just standing down here talking to me, and the first boy said, Dr. Mark, he said, you are one bad preacher. In my lifetime, bad has come to mean good. The second boy said, you're, you're not just bad. He said, you're the baddest preacher I've ever heard. Baddest is not even a word in the English language. The third boy said, you're not just bad. He said, you are one sick dude. One can only sense my level of personal affirmation. The fourth boy was not content with these low altitude compliments. He said, you are not just bad. You're not just sick. He said, you are the OG of crunk. I have no clue. I teach uh, the National Institute of Christian Leadership I mentioned earlier. A young man came through some years ago, Tommy. He now pastors a hip-hop church, whatever that is. And so I figured if anybody knew what the OG of crunk was, it would be Tommy. So I called him and I said, Tommy, somebody just told me I was the OG of crunk. What would that mean? Oh, he said, OG, it means the original gangster. So I said, he told me I was the original gangster of crunk. He said, yes, that's it. I said, no, see, Tommy, what I'm after, I was trying to sort of understand what it meant. Oh, he said, I'm sorry. I thought you just wanted to know what OG meant. He said, he said, crunk, it means the old original gangster of crunk. He said, it means you be the Mac Daddy. I said, Tommy, what I'm looking for here is more along the lines of, of a definition. He said, Dr. Mark, I'm trying to tell you. He said, it means you be off the chain. I just decided to leave it alone. Those of you who are younger, you, you, you can't sense the, the shift in vocabulary. I wonder if there's anybody here old enough. I'm probably the oldest person in the room, but I wonder if there's anybody here old enough to remember when gay meant happy. Anybody? I want gay back. Uh, who stole gay? Uh, when I was in high school, I'd go to a party, I'd come home. My mother would say, how was the party? I'd say, it was great. We were all gay. Um, she wasn't worried. We were just happy. Uh, what, about, what about the Christmas song? Don we now our gay apparel? That doesn't mean Christmas and drag. It means we were all just happy at the birth of Jesus. Well, here's a, here's a fascinating word that is embedded in this dramatic passage of Scripture. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord. It is remarkable, isn't it, that when Isaiah the prophet wants to give us his call report, what is called his call report, every prophet has a call report. That is the, what it sounds like. It is the report of his call by God into the office of a prophet. Isaiah was a priest who was called in this dramatic experience, one of the most flamboyant um, experiences ever given to a human being, a supernatural experience, is Isaiah chapter 6. This huge vision of God as a king upon his throne. He was called from being a priest into a prophet in the context 
of that great call. But when he records it for us, isn't this interesting? He dates it with a, pol a contemporary political event in his own life. In the year that King Uzziah died, don't confuse Uzziah the king and Isaiah the prophet, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord. We do the same thing. We do the same thing. We date things by contemporary events in our lives. I, I think that, uh, that some of you are old enough to remember when the word Columbine entered the functional vocabulary of American terror, and we learned that our high schools could, that we thought were places of safety and security could become killing fields. And then, of course, on yesterday, we celebrated or at least memorialized the collapse of the World Trade Center. Most of you will remember exactly where you were, those of you that were alive and old enough to remember. I know where I was. I was on the platform at the chapel at Southeastern University when they came and informed me that there was a terror attack that had toppled the World Trade Center. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget where I was the day that Jack Kennedy was killed. I was in Mrs. Kovacs' civics class in high school when the principal's voice came over the loudspeaker that crackled and said, please let me have your attention. I have the sober responsibility to tell you that the president has been shot dead in Dallas, Texas. I, I know exactly where I was. If the building and the and the desk are still there, I could take you exactly to where I was seated. I know exactly where I was when Dr. King was shot off of a hotel balcony in Memphis, Tennessee. Those are moments that, that mark us for good or for ill. We, we remember when we were first married. We remember the first baby that was born. We remember the first church that we were voted into. We remember when we were voted out. We... In the year that, and we mark things. How human, how human of Isaiah the prophet when he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord. He does not lie to himself about what has happened. It's very, very important. You notice he doesn't say the king was asleep or the king was temporarily out of place. He says in the year that King Uzziah died. Denial is not faith. Denial is not faith. Faith is saying, I know exactly what's going on. I know what's happening here. I understand the situation. I understand the circumstance. But I also see the Lord. The death of Uzziah was a complicated thing in Israeli history. Uzziah, if you will remember, Uzziah was a great king, a young king that came to the throne. There was great uh, energy. There was a resurgence in Israeli life, military, everything. And then at the peak of his career, do you remember? Uzziah, in the arrogancy of his heart, decided that it wasn't enough to be a king. He wanted to be a priest. And he tried to push his way into the temple and offer a sacrifice. The legitimate priesthood resisted him. And they said, you daren't do this, your majesty. Don't do it. And the king became so angry that God struck him in his face with leprosy. You, we can't imagine the horror that that is to us. Well, now we understand leprosy is a viral disease that can be treated with medicine. But at that time, leprosy was considered 
a curse from God. Said that it was an outward curse of an inward and spiritual disorder. So if the face of the king is struck with leprosy, the nation felt the face of the nation was struck with leprosy. It, it was a, like there was a curse upon Israel. And he lived the rest of his life and died with leprosy. So now Isaiah is dealing with the death of a king that he loved and admired and who fell into sin and who is now dead. And Isaiah is dealing with all the riot of conflicting emotions that we deal with, that we have to deal with all the time in funerals, that pastors have to deal with. When grandpa finally passes away after a long time of struggle with, with um, Alzheimer's, it drains the family financially, physically, emotionally. We, we, we deal with all kinds of conflicting emotions because on the one hand, we're relieved. Thank God it's over. Thank God it's over for him. Then when we feel that relief, then we feel guilty. We say, what in the world's the matter with me? Am I glad my grandfather's dead? Then we think maybe things will get better. Maybe now things will get better. Then it occurs to me, wait a minute, grandpa was the, the patriarch of this whole family. Maybe things will get worse. And then I feel fear. That's what Isaiah is dealing with. The king is dead. Maybe now we'll get a new king. Maybe things will be better. On the other hand, wait a minute. If the last king died with leprosy, how bad could it be? Now we face the complexities of human history. The things that happen, each one, we think this will surely be the worst thing that could happen in our lives. We think the World Trade Center has been toppled and we learn that there is a target on our backs and that there are people who hate us, hate our civilization, hate our faith, hate our country, hate everything that we stand for, and will do all that it takes to kill us all. And we think this could, there could be nothing possible worse than this. And then there is a global pandemic. Now, what do we say to these things? Do we say they don't exist? Do we walk through and say, oh, there's no such thing as COVID. Oh, there's no such thing as a pandemic. There's no such thing as Al-Qaeda. There's no such thing as ISIS. That's not what Isaiah did. He said in the year that King Uzziah died, he looked straight at it. He, he admitted it. He stated things as they are. We can state, I see this. I see all these things. And yet, somehow, we have our faith anchored. That's why people say to us, how can you be at peace? How come you're calm? How come you're walking through this? Don't you see the stock market looks like it's on amphetamines? Don't you see going up and down? Don't you see the craziness? Don't you see what's happening in Washington? Don't you see this? My wife came in the other night. She said to me, she looked, I was in the, watching TV. She said, Mark Rutland, I'm ashamed of you. She said, you're in your 70s. You've got an earned PhD. You're sitting here watching the Three Stooges. I said, baby, I've been watching what was going on in Washington. They're doing the same stuff, and this is funnier. <laughs> so we see all this. 
We see it, and people say to us, don't you read the newspaper? Don't you see what's going on? Don't you know there's a pandemic? We say, I see it. I'm not living in denial. I see it. They say, then how can you stay calm? Because I also see the Lord, and he's high and lifted up. I also see God. Don't you see, that's why God appears to Isaiah in just that moment as he does. He gives Isaiah this this fantastic vision, greater perhaps than any vision ever given anyone until the Mount of Transfiguration, of God himself seated upon a throne with the robe of his, the hem of his robe out through the temple in resplendent glory. And these seraphic beings with six wings shouting to each other across the open expanse of the temple, holy, 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 until the temple shakes and is filled with smoke. Why why does he appear to, to Isaiah as a king seated upon the throne in that moment? Don't you see? He's sending him and us a message. He's saying, look, I know you're afraid because the king has died. But I'm showing you the king is alive. I know you're worried because the throne of Israel is empty. But I'm showing you that the throne in heaven is occupied. I know you've you've been shaken because you've seen your national leader come down with leprosy and die with with a contemptible disease. But I'm showing you that your king is holy and righteous and omnipotent and that he cannot be bribed, he cannot be shaken, he cannot be altered. He will never die, he'll never get Alzheimer's, he's never gonna leave and he's on the throne. Our God is on the throne. Yes, we see these things. We walk through life. We live in the same place others do who have no God and have no faith. We, we, we see these things, but we also see the Lord, and he is high and lifted up. The second thing is it reminds us of something about God. Look, history is not happening to God. History is unfolding in the palm of his hand. Do you think for one moment that God picks up the New York Times every morning to find out what's going on? I wasn't expecting that. Now what do I do? Trust me, he's not reading the newspaper, but if he is, it's not the Times. He's watching Fox. No, I'm, I'm I'm just teasing you. Everybody stay calm. No, do you remember the, you remember the seven seals on the scroll in the book of Revelation, those seals represent the unfolding epochs of human history. And those seals have to open before history can move on. But those seals, you remember the, the, the revelator weeps. He says, who will come and open the seals? And they say, don't, don't cry. The son of God, the, the lamb, he'll come and open them. Those seals are there and they have to open, but they don't pop off at random like the buttons off a fat man's coat. They open by the sovereign decree of Almighty God. History moves as God declares it to move. History is not happening to God. History unfolds in the palm of his hand. There's nothing 
absolutely nothing that can happen in human history that is going to be a surprise to God. He is not shaken when we are shaken. He is not afraid when we are filled with fear. God remains high and lifted up. Yes, I see all this, but I also see the Lord. And he's high and lifted up. His train fills the temple. Beyond that, it, it restores our depth perception. I, I didn't grow up in a church like this. And uh, your pastor mentioned I grew up in Methodist church, highly liturgical. And I, I didn't grow up in a really Christian family. It wasn't, a, wasn't an evil family or anything. It was just very secular. Um, we went to church a few times a year. I, I never knew particularly why. When my parents had the whim, we'd go to church. And it was usually some liturgical Methodist church with all the bells and smells and all of that. And it was, they didn't have children's church in those days. Anybody remember? We didn't have children. You went to church, you know, and you just sat there. And also you kept your little mouth shut, you know. Anybody else here raised by a ferocious she-lion? My mother, um, my mother was five feet tall. She still lives, by the way. My mother is 96 her mind like a steel trap. Um, but my mother defied all the laws of physics. Um, how could I sit on one end of a nine-foot pew and my mother on the other end, and if I misbehaved, she could pinch me? I know, how, how could that happen? And so you learned in church to entertain yourself in the middle of these worship services that were not like this. They weren't fun and exciting. It was, I'm trying to think of the right word. No, there's not a nice word. They were just boring. Um, excruciatingly boring for a child. And I just tried to think of some way to entertain myself. And it was in those tedious, boring worship services that I had my first experience with learning depth perception. Hanging in the top of our church was a huge cut glass, beautiful chandelier, a huge chandelier that hung up in the top. And I learned that I could make my own thumb bigger than that chandelier. Now I'm going to show you. Look at one of these screens, if you will. Just turn your eyes off of me and look at one of the screens. And then if you will, extend, just go along with me on this, okay? Humble yourself. Extend your right arm full length and raise the thumb on that hand. And now close one eye. Close one eye. Now slowly, slowly draw that thumb closer to your eye. Closer, closer, closer. Now right against your eye. It's a miracle. Your thumb is now bigger than that screen. I would do that for hours. Now, pastor, if you look out one Sunday and the whole church is... I'm just saying... That is exactly what Satan does. He takes something, anything, and he pushes it right up against your face until it blocks the light. And he says, there, do you see that? And by the way, it doesn't have to be something bad. It can be something good. He can take something that you love, that you care about, your children, your family, your job, and he pushes it right up against your face. And he says, there, what if you lose that? What if you lose that? What if that's gone? What if your husband's gone? What if your wife's gone? What if one of those children? And he pushes it right up against your face until it blocks the light. 
Don't argue with him. When he says, do you see it? Say, yes, I see it. I see it. But I also see the Lord, and he's high and lifted up. It restores depth perception. The second thing, the third thing is, it, it also restores our sense of humility about ourselves. You remember, we didn't read it all, but if you remember from the passages we read on, Isaiah, when he sees God and sees his holiness, he says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. We, we have lost largely in this culture in which we live, in this, in this arrogant, overly fed Western atmosphere, we have lost our sense of humility. You ever see these uh, television shows where movie stars are interviewed? There used to be one. I'd watch it every now and again. And the guy who did the interviews had a, a few questions that he asked every time. Some of the questions would change, but he had a few questions he would ask every time. And one of those questions was, when you get to heaven, okay, right there, there is a presupposition there we might want to deal with. But when you get to heaven... What would you like to ask God? Do you ever hear that? And these arrogant, agnostic movie stars would all kind of get this tone in their voice. Oh, yeah, I got some things I want to ask God. I'm going to ask God. What about famine? What about AIDS? What about, what about war? As if we are going to hold God accountable for the wickedness and violence which we create. But we say, I'm going to ask God something. <laughs> Listen to me. When you get to heaven, you won't ask anything. When you are ushered in on golden streets and the throngs of heaven are singing the songs of glory and, and your eyes and your glorified body are having a hard time adjusting to the brilliance and the glory and you see God Almighty seated up on his throne and the rainbow and the angels and the archangels and God speaks to you in the voice of 10,000 waterfalls and he says, Any questions? You're going to say, I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> we, need to, we need to keep our sense of humility. We keep our eyes fastened on the glory and righteousness of God, and we keep our eyes clear on who we are in all humility. I see, the, I see human history. I live in the same world you do. I, I, I have a good friend who died yesterday from COVID. He died yesterday. He's in heaven today. He, he, he went to seminary with me. We, we were friends. He died yesterday of COVID. I see that. I see the world we live in. I'm not, I'm not walking in some kind of denial. I see it. But I also see the Lord. And he is high and lifted up. And his train fills the temple. And the angels and the archangels and all the company of heaven sing holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Well, you've been patient. Let me bring this to a conclusion. When I was uh, in seminary, right at the end of the Civil War, it hurts me when you laugh at me. The, that, that is rude. Um, I, I was in my 20s, and I made friends with a retired Presbyterian missionary who was in his 90s. 
So I want you to think, I was in my 20s 50 years ago, and he was in his 90s. So think about how far ago it was when he first began in missions. In those days, missionaries didn't make a 10-day trip to Bogota. In those days, you went off to the mission field to spend the rest of your life, bury your family there, and probably die there. Indeed, he had buried three children and his wife in Southeast Asia, and finally his denomination had brought him home, and I met him doing my um, studies. I met him in a retirement home for Presbyterian ministers in his 90s. He was a man of such joy and such, such uh, humor. I just loved him. And he told me a story I've never forgotten. He said that uh, when he was a missionary in Southeast Asia, that he always, we now, now Hollywood has told us what to call it. We call it a bucket list. I never knew that until the movie came out. But he had a dream, a fantasy, you know, of someday getting to see Mount Everest, the tallest mountain in the world. He said, I don't know where it came from. I just thought to myself, I'd love to see Mount Everest before I die. He got an opportunity. His denomination invited him to attend a missions conference in Germany, all expense paid, and he had one extra day. So on the way, he decided to take a departure and fly over, and he was going, he arranged a tour to go see the tallest mountain in the world, Mount Everest. When he landed, he said, the whole, that whole subcontinent area of Kathmandu and, and Nepal was engulfed in an impenetrable fog bank. He said when the plane landed, he couldn't even see the terminal. He was so discouraged. He got off, he met his guide, and he said, I'll just get on the next plane and fly on to Frankfurt. There's no use for me to try this. I, I can't possibly see the mountain in this fog. He said, the guide said, it's bigger than you think. He said, go with me. Just, just go with me. He said he went with him. They went on a train for a while, then they got off and got on to a, a Land Rover, and then they went to a certain place where there was supposed to be, I don't know what it was, some viewing platform or something which was supposed to be the, the perfect place to see the great mountain. And he said as they went up the mountain trail, he was holding the guide's coattail because he couldn't even see. He said the, the fog was like pea soup. He was just, and he said he grumbled the whole way. He's saying, let's go back. This is stupid. He said, I can't see my own feet. He said the, mount, the, the guide kept saying the same thing. It's bigger than you think. Finally, he said the guide sort of engineered him to the right place and said, now, look. And he said he peered through the distant fog and he thought against the horizon he could see one mountain just a little bit taller than the others. And he said, there. I think I see it right there. He said that guide laughed and came around behind him and took hold of his head. And he said, not down there. He said, look up there. That's one of the sweetest ministries of the Holy Spirit. He comes behind us, whether it is in historical catastrophe or in some kind of horrible plague or even at the death of a loved one. He comes behind us with feathered fingers. 
and lifts our eyes aloft. And he says, not down there, my child. Look up there. He is high and lifted up. And his train fills the temple. Let's pray together. All over the house, if you will. Father in heaven, almighty king, Lord of glory, your God of history, your God in history, your God above history. History shakes us, O oh God, and we confess it to you. But we know that it does not shake you. Now with your eyes closed, and your heads bowed, if you will, I just want to ask you this question. I'd like no one to be looking about, but I'm going to open my eyes. I want you to know that. And if you would say, Dr. Mark, will you please pray for me? Please pray. I, I need to be encouraged. I need strength. I need faith. I'm, I'm facing life, history, challenges in my home, my family. And it's shaken me. It has shaken me. And I need my faith restored and rebuilt. And I need my eyes back on the king. That's, that's nothing to be ashamed of. It's just to say, I, I've been shaken. If that's you, then you lift your hand. And all over the house, and I want to pray for you. Yes, of course. So many, so many. Sure, sure, that's, that's not some shameful thing. You're just admitting your humanity in the face of overwhelming history and personal struggles. Heavenly Father, you see our hands. Our hearts are lifted as well. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Fix our eyes on you. Make our faith again to rest upon the God who sits upon his throne. Give me hope and faith and confidence unto thee, O Lord, and thee alone do I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed. Let not mine enemies triumph over me. Thee, O oh Lord, unto Thee do I lift up my soul. God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord, even Jehovah, is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. Tell Him, I trust You. Go on, move your lips. I trust You. I trust You. I trust You with my life. I trust You with my family. I trust You with my future. I trust you. Now may the Lord himself restore again your hope and give you faith. In the mighty name, Jesus, the strong son of God. Amen. Amen and amen. God bless you. God bless this precious church.